Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1. Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Karen Miller. There's this common complaint about politicians that they're not connected enough to regular people. Even the fact that we don't think of politicians as regular people says a lot. And that's because many politicians have very separate lives from their constituents. They get amazing health care. They tend to be a lot richer. So if you're a senator and you've got a million dollars, you're a pretty poor senator. But politicians also like to say not just that they understand our situations, but that our stress is their stress, that our disappointment is their disappointment. Paul Bloom says that does a huge disservice to us. He's the author of the book Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion, and he's a professor of psychology at Yale. We first aired my conversation with him in January of this year, and he told me that some kinds of empathy do have their place, but in lots of cases, Empathy itself hurts good decision-making. One sense of empathy is in terms of understanding, just knowing what it's like, knowing what people want. And I think any good politician needs a lot of that. You need to understand uh, what makes people happy, what they're looking for. You need that to persuade them and also just to do good in the world. Of course, any bad politician, any, any dictator, any demagogue also benefits from that kind of empathy. But, but that's kind of necessary. The sort of empathy I'm arguing against involves shared feelings, feeling people's pain, feeling their suffering. Which is a classic thing sometimes that politicians say, right? I feel your pain. And we've literally had politicians say such things. And the idea is maybe I don't really have the pain myself, but I recognize that you have it. And somehow I can so deeply internalize that, that I understand what it's like to struggle with a job or to not have a job, whatever it is. That's right. And Bill Clinton, I think, famously said that in response to an AIDS activist, I feel your pain. And, you know, he looked like he really meant it. I think that if you look at moral decisions, moral actions, intimate relations, the the whole shebang, this sort of empathy is corrosive. It makes for bad parents and bad doctors. It makes for bad decisions, bad choices about charity, and and I think ultimately bad leadership. What you really want in a leader, uh, somebody who has any power, is somebody who could try to think ahead, to reason statistically, think in terms of cost and benefits of helping the most people. And empathy works like a spotlight. It zooms you in on a single individual. I mean, one way I put it in my book is it's because of empathy that the leaders in this world and also many citizens care a lot more about a baby stuck in a well than they do about climate change. And it's not as if the effects of this are harmless. It's not as if empathy maybe just leaves us a bit of bias or a bit of misapplied attention. The effects of this sort of empathic reaction could be and, and often are terrible. When countries like ours go to war or when we treat vast segments of our population horribly, Often we're motivated by empathic concern for some sufferers. Some of our worst laws in the criminal justice system are motivated by empathy for innocent victims. Some of the stupidest laws we have, the cruelest laws, are named after dead girls. And I think a good leader could step outside that and reason rationally. Are there examples of things that that jump out to you when you think these are sort of laws that came out of empathy and, uh, in your view at least, it was a mistake? 
Well, I'll take a specific case, a, a, a kind of well-known case, which is the case of Willie Horton. So some yes. of, some people listening to this will be old enough to remember that Michael Dukakis, the governor of Massachusetts, is running for president. And uh, what came out during his election run was he had a furlough program in Massachusetts where prisoners were released. And one prisoner, Willie Horton, a large African-American man, assaulted somebody, raped somebody else. And the furlough program was shut down and was seen as an embarrassing mistake. And it was one of the reasons why we never really had a president Dukakis. But it turns out that the furlough program was making a positive difference. Even factoring in those criminals who would offend, there were fewer people being murdered, fewer being assaulted, fewer being raped. But you could easily feel empathy for somebody who was attacked. You can't feel empathy for somebody who would have been attacked but wasn't statistically right. because of a program. Right. I, you know, I um, have vague memories of uh, the Willie Horton incident, and I believe that Dukakis's opponent in the presidential election, George H.W. Bush, ran ads featuring kind of like a mugshot or a very unflattering picture of Willie Horton, basically saying, look, I mean, Dukakis let a rapist out of prison. Is this who you want to be your president? That's exactly right. Willie Horton was was actually raised by Dukakis's opponent in the primaries, Al Gore, but uh, George Bush took it up. Hmm. And, and that illustrates another fact about empathy, supported both by laboratory studies and also common sense, which is your empathy flows very powerfully for people who are look like you, come from your country, your friends, your family, your skin color, attractive, young, babies, teenage girls. Empathy is very difficult to get for people who look very different from you, who frighten you. And uh, the fact that it's hard to get people concerned about issues like mass incarceration is that the people who are incarcerated don't tend to look like the people making the decisions. They tend to have done bad things or somewhat bad things. And so empathy shuts down. I think we end up with a far more just society, more just leaders, if they combine reasoned decision with sort of more distant compassion, wanting to make the world a better place. Is it possible to feel people's pain less, to like turn it down some, you know, to, I mean, obviously, if you're, what your argument is, don't be so guided by empathy, then to some degree, you'd like to minimize it because if it's very, very strong, you know, emotion, it, it can be hard to ignore it. It's a great question. And in some way, it's a sort of parallel question to there are many findings that were biased by implicit racial biases. Even if we want to be egalitarian and fair, right. we find you know, a lot of evidence that we are favor, we favor those of our own race. We favor attractive people over unattractive people and so on. And then the question is, what do we do about it? And in the case of empathy, there are different options. One very specific suggestion, which is quite interesting, is there's a lot of research suggesting that mindfulness meditation and meditative practices actually make people more compassionate, but less empathic. Hmm. And so somebody suffering from burnout, a doctor, a therapist who feels too much empathy and so isn't very good at his or her job, might benefit from meditative practices. But I think in general, there should be more of a cultural shift. What I'd like to see become taboo is somebody arguing for a policy who then drags out some innocent victim. We should save Obamacare because look at this poor schnook. Look how sad he is. Look at his life. Or we should demolish Obamacare because look at this portion of <laughs> Right, right. There's always going to be – if you're talking about leadership in terms of government, any broad, interesting policy is going to have winners and losers. 
inevitably in the short term. People are going to suffer no matter what you do. Gun control, affirmative action, abortion. And so we should try our best not to be swayed by pictures and videos and sad stories and ask cold-blooded questions like, which healthcare system is going to help the most people and provide the best healthcare and so on? And tell our politicians, don't give me these stories. Here's the problem I have with that. I think that somebody who said, listen, everybody, I'm not going to focus on this abduction case or forget the case of Willie Horton, you know, forget this, the case of this rapist. I really want to focus your attention on, on this chart here. And this, this yes. shows you this shows you who would really be helped by this health care law or who would really be helped by this uh, recidivism law or whatever it is. I cannot imagine that that person would be elected. I don't feel like that's how we elect people for good or for bad. So I wonder if you're saying, here's the ideal scenario, but I don't know that we can achieve it. I'm sort of saying that. I agree with what you're saying. If I ran a charity, I would certainly use empathic appeals myself. Mm -hmm. If I was a demagogue and trying to instill hatred against Muslims or Mexicans, I would use empathy for victims of people who've lost their jobs or victims of crimes and so on. It's always there. It's like a salt that adds flavor to everything, and it's very tempting. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller talking with Paul Bloom, a professor of psychology at Yale and author of the new book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. Do you think that if we jettisoned empathy to some degree, that we would have less nepotism, parochialism, nationalism, than in general we are used to? Because, I mean, I think one of the appeals of all of those things is you feel the pain more of people that you know or people who are like you than you do some girl in a refugee camp 5,000 miles away from you. And, and I mean, would that be a good thing? To, I mean, because we think of nationalism as, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's people who think of it as bad and some people who think it is really, really good to support your own first. But would there be less sort of supporting your own if we were less empathic? There would be less. I think that empathy tends to exaggerate and increase our biases. Empathy is an emotional system that's extremely vulnerable to bias, more than most. And so if we were to sort of strip empathy from our brains or more plausibly just have a bit less of it in public discourse, I think we would be better able to appreciate that a Mexican life and an American life from the grand scheme of things are worth the same. Hmm. And even though somebody is not pleasant to look at, maybe they're homeless, maybe they're, they disgust you, still they're a person. And even though empathy is silent, that doesn't take away from their, from their rights, from their importance. I don't think it would go away. There are all sorts of other cognitive systems we have that, and these also reflect all sorts of biases, and not all biases are bad. So I think it's wrong if I were to favor white people over black people. If I were to argue, I, I'm just going to patronize white stores and give money to white people over black, that seems wrong. But it doesn't seem wrong if I say, I'm going to value my own children over your children. Mm -hmm. I have that preference, and I actually, I'm going to, I sort of going to sign up for that preference. I like right. that preference. Right. I am not ashamed of that preference. And I think some preferences towards friends and families are so ingrained in our psychology, so much part of the way we think, that it's asking too much to try to reject them. Hmm. But racial preferences, I have a very different feeling about. And national preferences are complicated. 
I think there are rational arguments for favoring your own country over others. It just is how the world works better. But I think we take it way too far. I think the world would be much better if we stop obsessing so much about national boundaries. So on the other side of this whole argument um, is... I think some pretty powerful arguments the other way. So you could argue, for example, that a lot of terrible things that have happened in history, slavery, the Holocaust, would have been averted or uh, ended more quickly if people had had some empathy for the people who were suffering under those regimes, you know, in those situations and felt like, you know, I'm not just going to think about me and I'm okay right now. I'm going to think about the people who are sort of on the receiving end of all this pain. And what would it be like to be one of those people? But if more people had thought that way, imagine how much more quickly some of those terrible times could have ended. I think what you're saying is exactly right. If, you know, if slave owners had rich empathy for slaves, they wouldn't be slave owners anymore. Mm -hmm. If concentration camp guards had empathy for the inmates, uh, the Holocaust would have never happened. I agree with that. It's just empathy doesn't work that way. Empathy is, is, is almost always stronger for your side than for the other side, for your family than for strangers. And in fact, when you look at the most evil institutions in the world, it's not as if they were sort of anti-empathic. The people who ran them, the slave owners, the concentration camp guards, were not cold-blooded psychopaths. They were richly empathic people who had friends and families who they loved and so on. They just didn't empathize with the people they were enslaving and killing. And this is how empathy works. Mm -hmm. So people might bring up, you say, well, you know, what about a movie like, like Schindler's List? Doesn't that show you how empathy could be extended towards innocent victims of the concentration camps. Right. But for every Schindler's List, there's A Birth of a Nation, which is a movie that inspired tremendous support for the KKK hmm. by telling stories about innocent white victims, white women brutalized by blacks. So empathy is an unreliable moral guide. Mm -hmm. And what you're saying, too, is anybody can deploy it. They, they don't have to be good people. They can be not good people, too. That's right. I mean, I think that's a profound point. Many people, and in my experience, particularly liberals, tend to think empathy is on their side. And if only they could kind of ramp up the empathy on the other side, then everybody would agree with them. But if you look at real political debates, actual ones, it's not a question of whether to empathize. It's a question of who to empathize with. Do you empathize with the parent of a toddler shot by a stray bullet and then want more gun control? Or do you empathize with a woman who's raped because she's not has no right to have a weapon to defend herself? Mm -hmm. With the Syrian immigrant who really wants a place to live, the refugee, or with the person who's going to lose his job because a foreigner is going to take it away from him? So politicians push back and forth, finding somebody to get you to em empathize with them. And this is true even with sort of the great evils you were talking about before. Slave owners, for instance, would give empathic arguments for the institution of slavery, one of which being that they needed to take care of these people who were unable to take care of themselves. If we were gods and could feel empathy for every individual at the same time, regardless of their relationship with us, maybe I wouldn't be against empathy. Right. But empathy works as it does. And so this is why we should seek out better alternatives. 
So if you distilled your message down and you thought about how to sort of turn it into practical advice for people who make decisions in their everyday lives, I wonder what your advice would be because a lot of what we do all the time is say, like to a little kid, you know, don't hit Jenny because how would you feel if you were Jenny and you got hit, right? I mean, that, that's the argument. We, empathy comes in all the time when we're trying to teach people to be better people. Um, so what kind of practical advice would you have? So you're, you're actually raising a good point. So there are cases where empathy plays a good role. And you mentioned one of them, where if you're insensitive to suffering in another person, a blast of empathy, you know, you're your parent telling you, look, how would you feel if somebody said that to you? Mm -hmm. Can't actually play some role. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to kids, and certainly when it comes to adults, I guess the message I would have is don't listen to your heart. I mean, we now have, there's like a thousands of years of philosophy and, and current events, but also a lot of psychological neuroscience research that says your heart is, is biased and enumerate and irrational and short-sighted. And I think we should acknowledge, explicitly acknowledge that the things that sway us, the stories, the pictures, may not reliably map onto the right things to do. That there's a difference between what feels right in the short term and what actually is right. Hmm. And knowing this won't magically make the lure of empathy go away any more than knowing that I have implicit biases will make those biases disappear. But it helps. Yeah. It helps people during their slow, deliberative decisions to say, you know, I see that this person who wants me to support going to war has shown me quite a gruesome QuickTime video, which is very upsetting to me. But maybe that's not a good reason. Maybe I want to hear more about how many people are suffering and how could we make a difference by responding and so on. Paul Bloom is the author of the new book, Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. He's also a psychology professor at Yale. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. We first aired my interview with Paul Bloom in January of this year, and it's one of the interviews in all the time that I've been doing this show that has really stuck with me. If you want to read some passionate debate over his arguments about empathy, check out the Boston Review, which we've got a link to on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Innovation Hub Radio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to inspire everyone to push the boundaries of what's possible through hands-on exhibits, interactive programs, K-12 engineering curricula, and educator resources. Learn more at mos.org. In 2014, a strange thing happened during the confirmation of a political appointee. Now, the job that the person wanted is one that most of us don't pay any attention to. It was ambassador to Argentina. But the headline around this nomination was magnetic. The nominee had never actually been to Argentina. President Obama did not seem too worried. He made the nomination, and the nominee was eventually confirmed. He had actually nominated an ambassador to Hungary the year before, whose main accomplishment was that she was a producer of the soap opera The Bold and the Beautiful. So... Why were these people nominated? Well, because they and people that they were associated with were big money political contributors. 
the argument against that way of doing things, and clearly President Obama did not start the trend of giving out political favors, nor was he the last person to do it, the argument against it is we want real experts making decisions for the country, not people who golf with the president or who helped him get elected. Parag Khanna is a senior research fellow at the National University of Singapore, and he says there's a name for the sorts of experts that we should be embracing more, technocrats. But what America's done, at least in his view, is reject technocrats and label them something else, something that often feels like an epithet. Technocrats is not a synonym for elites. Otherwise, we wouldn't need the word technocrats. Kana says that what we can ask technocrats to do is find pragmatic solutions to problems. But the rumbling that he's been hearing from the public is kind of different. Down with the technocrats, out with the technocrats. Uh, you know, this, re, re, Trump's election represents uh, a rejection of Obama and his sort of soulless technocrats. That's just nonsense because Obama didn't have a lot of technocrats either. America, quite frankly, doesn't have a lot of technocrats. And to be fair, the labeling of career civil service folks as elites or useless bureaucrats, that's not new. In 1976, a presidential candidate staked his candidacy on the claim that bureaucrats were ruining communities in all sorts of ways, including things like enforcing school busing. Now, that candidate lost in the primary. He didn't even make it to the general. But his message had staying power. And so did the messenger. His name was Ronald Reagan. I've met Americans, and I would suggest that if there's going to be any forced busing, it ought to be a periodic forced busing of the Washington bureaucracy out into the country to meet the real people. Parag Khanna argues not that that sort of rhetoric isn't attractive, but that it isn't effective. And it's time for something new. In his book, Technocracy in America, Khanna says that places like Singapore and Switzerland, and to a lesser extent Germany, which rely more than we do on technocrats, have reaped tremendous benefits in the last few decades. Kana spoke with me from Singapore in January, just a few weeks before President Trump was inaugurated, and he claimed that what he was seeing in America was a reflection of what he called degenerative politics, not good governance. So the World Bank, for example, has something called the Worldwide Governance Indicators. They look at 36 metrics of issues like political participation, accountability of the government, the, you know, freedoms and rights of people, civic rights, social rights, economic rights, um, you know, progress in terms of um, uh, per capita income. We should really be looking uh, not just at the uh, average income, but the median income, since, of course, uh, the United States, like many other countries, is, is quite unequal in terms of income distribution. Um, it's things like public Public safety, education standards, and attainment. Very, very prosaic, mundane, measurable things that all in all, all taken together, add up to the good life. And if you take a broad sort of selection of these measures, um, again, it's been known for quite some time. I, I documented this pretty thoroughly in my first book, uh, The Second World, about 10 years ago, that the U.S. is declining in these metrics, while other countries, uh, take former Soviet republics in Eastern Europe, for example, countries in East Asia like Korea or Taiwan or um, Singapore, are rising uh, quite rapidly. And so it's not that there is this full displacement going on, but remember one thing, like any other bad habit, the further you fall behind, the further you let it all hang out, the longer it takes to, to rebuild and to regroup and to get back on top. If you buy into the idea of technocrats, they shouldn't be first and foremost Republican or Democratic cheerleaders. They should be trying to figure things out like, 
How do we get the most people, the best health care at the cheapest price, no matter what you call the plan and no matter how much interest group lobbying there's been? Technocrats are the folks with their heads down. They're problem solving. If you don't know how to actually administer and run policies through large bureaucracies, you're not a technocrat. You're an interloper. And our government is full of them. So a technocrat not only has the pedigree, but they also know how to get things done. And I dare say that's our great deficiency. No country has as many smart people as America. That's not our problem. Our problem is translating them to getting things done. If you're interested in what one alternative system looks like, consider Switzerland. Kana says it's based on an idea that American politicians have long embraced, a team of rivals. They have a seven-member federal executive council. Those seven individuals come from three or four different political parties. It's formed through a coalition, so it's representative of the, the balance of power within the parliament. There is, it rotates, there's a first among equals, but it rotates every, uh, you know, sort of a cycle of, of one year. So there's reciprocity. If there's stalwarts and holdouts, um, you know, who are, say, misbehaving or blocking consensus among the seven, guess what? You know, the position's going to rotate in a year, and then everyone's going to gang up on you. And if anyone knows anything about Swiss politics, again, it's a small country, but they have serious, you know, big divisive political issues. It's a very diverse country. They're dealing with a lot of turbulence in Europe. And and yet they still manage to always take smart, long-term decisions. Now, some of the most technocratic countries in the world are not really democracies in the same way that the U.S. is, like Singapore. But Kana says if the U.S. could incorporate more technocrats into our brand of democracy, our leaders might not be as flashy, but they could be more effective. Here's his vision. Quite frankly, it's more democratic than what we have now because one of the steps in this picture that, that we're painting is that you would have mandatory voting because countries like Australia and Belgium and others do have that. You would have a multi-party system, right? Again, there's nothing in the Constitution that says we should only have two political parties. All of the countries that are ranked higher than the United States in terms of the quality of their democracy are multi-party parliamentary systems. So I would, uh, be, I would I feel that we should have three or four political parties that hold each other much more accountable. I have advocated replacing the Senate with what I call an assembly of governors. I believe governors are much more competent administrators and much more knowledgeable about the kinds of policies that we need on a national scale, and, and that we should have really two governors for each state, one that's in the state capital, one that's in Washington, so I kind of flesh that out. I believe we should have a Supreme Court who's tasked with thinking about constitutional modifications. Obviously, all branches of government and, and the public have to be involved in constitutional modifications, but the Supreme Court and its members on the bench shouldn't always just be taking the fifth uh, about how they feel we need to evolve our constitution. So you don't have to buy Switzerland. You don't have to buy Singapore. You certainly don't have to buy China. You don't, really have, you don't have to believe that China is a better government because it's not. But you can definitely learn from how other countries do certain things. And it is a myth uh, to think that we can't do them. Parag Khanna is a senior research fellow at the National University of Singapore and the author of Technocracy in America. If you felt like this interview broadened your mind a little, maybe changed your perspective, or even made you just go, huh, that was interesting, take a minute to leave us a review on iTunes. It'll help more people find their way to our show. Plus, we will be indebted to you, and someday that karma is coming right back at you. If you've been paying attention to politics for the last quarter century, 
There's a list of names that you know not because they were public people, but because they were the geniuses behind their presidents. Karl Rove, Dick Morris, David Axelrod, Steve Bannon. Most of these folks didn't speak much to the media at the height of their power because their role was to be brilliant PR men, to understand how you package a candidate and then a president for their constituents. Well, around the time that Dick Morris was helping President Clinton, a 103-year-old man named Edward Bernays passed away. Bernays was the guy who had taught America a new and a lot more effective way to do PR. He'd been born in 1891 into a very unusual family. His uncle was Sigmund Freud. And Bernays could sell pretty much anything. Cigarettes, books, soap, and maybe most consequentially, politicians. Larry Tai is the author of The Father of Spin, Edward L. Bernays and the Birth of Public Relations. When I spoke to him in February, he told me Bernays thought of himself as the smartest guy around, and he knew he could reshape the world. His influence, the influence of public relations and the influence of the combining the art and the science of public relations the way Eddie Bernays did, is everywhere. How did he do it? Well, you could say it was all in the family. What he did in his career was take his uncle's ideas on why people behave the way they did and recraft that behavior to make them act like his clients wanted them to. And whether that was voting for a certain candidate or buying a certain kind of toothpaste, Eddie Bernays knew not just how to sell things, but how to reshape people's whole notion of what they wanted and what they needed. We'll get to politics in a minute, but here's an example of how this rather brilliant ability to manipulate public opinion played out for the young Bernays, who had immigrated from Austria to America when he was an infant. Eddie Bernays was approached at one point in his early career by the leading booksellers in America, and they wanted to sell more books. And in the pre-Eddie Bernays days, the way you would have done that is you would have lowered the price and people would buy more books. To Eddie Bernays, that was vertical, straightforward thinking, and he was a lateral thinker. And so what he did was he went to the leading opinion makers in the country, and he asked them a question that he knew the answer to. And the question was, is it a good thing for civilization if people read more books? (laughs) Now, if you find anybody in the world, including our current president, who says that books are bad for civilization, I'd like to meet that person. So he gets nearly 100% of all these leading intellectuals saying books make sense for civilization. And then he goes to the leading home builders and designers of the era, And he convinces them they can strike a blow for civilization by building into every new home and every new apartment built-in bookshelves. And he knew if he had bookshelves, people weren't going to put cereal boxes there. They were going to put books there. And he convinced, and it was brilliant, all the leading booksellers not just to sell more books one by one, but to have an entire house full of books. And when you go into, I don't know what it's like in your home or apartment, but people love the world that comes and visits to have them think that they're reading all the books on their bookshelves, and so they buy en masse a lot of books. And that was the way Eddie Bernays reshaped everything. The world before was the discount. The world after was get people to buy books en masse to show that they're literate. 
Let me actually go back for a minute because um, he was involved in politics in his own day um, with Woodrow Wilson, with Calvin Coolidge. Talk a little bit about his efforts to sell the American people on political ideas. So it's not just that, you know, he has ramifications today. He, he was into that when he was uh, around. So you asked two questions. One is selling the world on politicians and the other is on ideas. Let's take politicians for a second. Calvin Coolidge, at the time that he brought in Eddie Bernays, was known as one of the sourest politicians in America. He was somebody that nobody especially liked. And Eddie Bernays understood that, and he decided that he had to come in and sweeten up this guy's personality. So he no, hold on. Was this was sure. this because somebody just paid him a whole boatload of money? Did he like Calvin Coolidge's policies? What was the motivation here? So the motivation, as always, with Eddie Bernays, was a combination of cash dollars and of ego. Okay. And the cash dollars were somebody paid him a lot of money, and the ego was could he actually take a sitting American president and reshape their image? And this was a perfect kind of. Fraud Freudian or Bernaysian kind of challenge. So what he did is he brought to Washington a trainload, Al Jolson, and a trainload of happy celebrities. And he had... Al Jolson, the musician. Al Jolson, the musician. Al Jolson, the great musician and entertainer and guy that people that Americans thought of as a happy-go-lucky kind of guy, which exa- was exactly the opposite of the way they thought of Calvin Coolidge. And by bringing them into Washington and having them hang out for a day at the White House and bringing in all the right press of the day to see Calvin Coolidge having a great time with Al Jolson, he reshaped in a small way that ended up becoming a big way the image of an American president. And he, more importantly, showed that what we think of somebody today doesn't have to be the limitation of what we will think of them tomorrow. And he would have absolutely um, gotten a thrill out of seeing the way that political spin has become so much a part of what we do that every politician does it in an extraordinary way and never, ever in our history, in a way as effective as taking an entertainer like Donald Trump and putting him in the White House. And that was pure Bernaysian. We will, we will get to that. I, I, you, when I said what were his incentives, you mentioned cash and ego. I noticed you did not mention ideology. So this was not like it wasn't like Calvin Coolidge was promoting policies that were Eddie Bernays's favorite policies. No. So Eddie Bernays' ideology was, shall we say, flexible, and <laughs> he could, in one generation, help convince a generation of American women that didn't smoke cigarettes to smoke cigarettes and have probably a bigger impact on addicting a generation in the 1920s and 1930s of American women to smoking cigarettes and anybody at any tobacco company. And then 40 years later, he could come in with no ideology and convince a generation of women that it was dangerous to smoke the cigarettes that he had helped addict them to. His ideology was flexible. His ideology was shifting as his clients did and as American public opinion did. And uh, he made tremendous amounts of money from those campaigns. Let's actually listen to a commercial, um, a Lucky Strike commercial, and that is the cigarette that he really is known for helping to push. 
and you know there was this time when it was considered unfeminine right to for women to smoke but you know by around 1930 there was a real desire to tap into an untapped market and the question was how do you make a cigarette seem feminine so we're going to listen to a commercial this is from the um, 1950s it starts off with the popular tv announcer uh, sandy becker hi my name is sandy becker you've probably heard me telling about lucky's better taste well here's someone else who's found that lucky's taste better america's prettiest golf pro miss alice bauer after a hard day out on the golf course and really hard competition i like to come in and sit down and relax and light up a lucky I guess that's a matter of taste, too. But to me, Lucky's taste better. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Larry Tai, the author of The Father of Spin, Edward Bernays, and the Birth of Public Relations. So, Larry Tai, how did Edward Bernays take cigarettes and convince women, which he did very successfully, that smoking was a cool thing to do for women? So we get a hint of what he did in that clip that you just played. He brought in an elegant, very female star and had her say that cigarettes were okay with her and that they were actually better than okay, that they were relaxing and that they were something good for her to be doing. What he did in one of the most brilliant single strokes of a public relations campaign ever, what he did on Easter Sunday which was a holiday that suggested sort of freedom, religious freedom, on Fifth Avenue in New York, the boulevard that suggested American style and elegance and sort of the center of American public life. He convinced women to light up on a Sunday, on this Easter Sunday, what he called their torches of freedom. Mm. So they didn't know that he was working for a tobacco company. They thought they were striking a blow for the early women's liberation movement. And he had them march down Fifth Avenue with every reporter that mattered in the world ready to watch this. And it was called the Torches of Freedom campaign. And it looked like an effort to strike a blow for women's freedom. And in fact, what it was trying to do is double the size of the market for cigarettes. You had all the men already addicted, lots of men in America addicted, but no women smoking cigarettes. And he managed for the biggest tobacco maker in America, American Tobacco Company, to make cigarettes look like something that were perfectly suited for the stylish woman, which is what every woman in America back then wanted to be. Mm -hmm. And it was extraordinary. And it was, he got this idea not by just sitting down and thinking it up. He got the idea by going to a guy named Dr. A.A. Brill, who was a disciple of his uncle Sigmund's, and he had said, what is the taboo that is preventing women from lighting up cigarettes? And Brill said that it was seen by them as being unladylike. And so he made it from something negative to something positive. It worked, and we know it worked because we can watch the rates of lung cancer in American women shoot up from that early period where they started first smoking cigarettes when Eddie Bernays brought them into this bad habit. By the way, do, do you think that he knew that cigarettes were bad for you? He never smoked. He never smoked. And what his daughters, both of whom live in the Boston area, what his daughters say is that at home, at the same time he was trying to addict a generation of women to smoke cigarettes, he told them to take their mother's cigarettes 
and crush them like bones and flush them down the toilet. So it was a time when almost everybody in the world could say we didn't know how dangerous smoking was. Eddie Bernays was one of the few people who did know because all the early evidence that was coming in and was disguised or tossed away by the tobacco companies, Eddie Bernays had access to. Hmm. So can you think of an instance or two? I mean, we obviously just went through a presidential campaign and and presidential campaigns now and maybe always were about selling the people and the ideas in them. But explain to me how you think that Bernays' influence showed up, let's say, in the last election. So it showed up less effectively than she would have liked with everything that Hillary Clinton did. Every focus group that she held That was Bernays. Every time that she tried to spin her message for a particular audience as she segmented the electorate, this is a message I'm going to take into black America. This is a message I'm going to take into Hispanic America. This is my message for women and trying to show that I am sensitive to women's issues. All of that, the scientific polling, taking the polls and staging events, Every one of those things was a direct hand-me-down from Eddie Bernays. But the guy who not only used all those techniques, but who in his heart and soul reflected Bernays' perfect notion of what an entertainer was more than a candidate and what the ultimate spinmeister was, was Donald Trump. He never went off message. He looked like he was appealing to... What did Hillary Clinton call them? The deplorables? Mm -hmm. But in fact, he knew just who he was going after. He knew precisely the message he was crafting for them. And he showed, he understood how to make this thing work in a way that probably would have shocked even Eddie Bernays' flexible sense of ideology and of ethics. But it worked incredibly well. So now explain this to me, though, because... Eddie Bernays seems like a very methodical guy. He understood, as you said, he he could segment a population. He understood, okay, if you want to increase people, number of people smoking, the number of people buying books, you do this over here and you do this over here and you do this over here. Okay. And if Hillary Clinton was doing that, then isn't that to some degree testament to the failure of his ideas? And on the other side, Donald Trump... May, I mean, it's, you know, it's hard to know. It's impossible to know fully what happened behind the scenes. But he did not seem like a scientifically driven candidate, like, right, that he was really, truly understanding what everybody wanted and tailoring his message. M- maybe he instinctively understood. But do you know what I mean? Yes. But so you answered your own question at the end when you said the instinct. Hillary Clinton understood the science of all the things, and she would have been a perfect Freudian disciple. What she was missing was the other half of the equation, the art of it. Donald Trump doesn't understand science. He doesn't believe in the science of just about anything, probably including psychology and the way people behave the way that they do. But he understood the art in a way that only an artist, you could say maybe a con man or an entertainer would, and he instinctively got up there and performed every time in a way that was appealing beyond the media, directly to an audience, in a way, the only evidence, I would have thought that we'd be looking at the election and saying, Trump didn't get any of this, he didn't get what Bernays stood for, and yet the outcome of the vote suggested that he got it better than anybody. He understood how to piece it together with precisely what Eddie Bernays wrote a series of books, and one of his books was called simply Propaganda. And in Eddie Bernays' mind, propaganda was not a bad thing. It was taking and understanding behavior and changing it. 
Donald Trump understood every hot button to push, how to use propaganda in a way that has redefined, I think, what campaigns will look like and maybe redefined what America will look like. And Eddie Bernays, Eddie Bernays was Jewish. Eddie Bernays grew up hating everything that Adolf Hitler stood for. And yet Eddie Bernays took a certain kind of pride in the fact that on the bookshelves of Joseph Goebbels, the propaganda minister for Adolf Hitler, were Eddie Bernays' books on behavior. And he understood that anybody could use this stuff. You could use public relations and public attitude shifting for better and for worse. And he would have watched with some degree of awe and some degree of shock the way Donald Trump used all of his techniques brilliantly. Um, you've pointed out that PR has become more and more integrated into politics. Obviously, Bernays was involved in, in well, politics really in some ways throughout his life. Um, a PR firm was hired uh, to influence America around the first Persian Gulf War that, that was started in 1990. Um you know, as you said, Bernays lived a long time. He was 103, died in 1995. What did he make of how politics had changed, some of it as a result of the kind of PR strategies, the kind of sort of commercialism strategies he had brought into the domain of politics? He loved it. He loved it because it showed that he had had an influence. When he started out, he was called when he died in a front-page obituary in the New York Times. He was called the father of public relations. That was... Anytime anybody says the name Eddie Bernays who knows that field, they assume that he was the father. Well, he was a good enough spin guy that, in fact, he wasn't the father, but he was the best practitioner. And so he gave himself the moniker that he wanted. He outlived all of his would-be contestants to that crown. And he loved the fact that from commercial life to political life, taking women to smoking cigarettes to taking America to war... He could look and understand the role he personally had played in one campaign after another, and he could look at everything that came after and say, they are my children. I was the father, and I can see direct links in terms of how public relations influences everything we do. Larry Tai is the author of The Father of Spin, Edward Bernays, and the Birth of Public Relations. His most recent book is a biography of Robert Kennedy. Thank you so much for being here. Great to be with you. spoke to Larry Tai in February, and on our website, we've got part of an interview that Edward Bernays did with journalist and former political advisor Bill Moyers. Here is Bernays talking with Moyers about his work on behalf of Woodrow Wilson after World War I. Woodrow Wilson became a godhead symbol. They believed that he had made the world safe for democracy. They believed that he had fought the war to end all wars. And, and so yet, did I. And you, you, believed it, you believed your own propaganda. <laughs> That's at innovationhub.org. Finally, before we go today, the quick story of a man who is a terrible failure at marketing, right up until the moment that he was successful beyond his wildest dreams. Around the turn of the century, a guy named Frank was selling food wholesale in Minnesota. But things were rough. His first marriage broke up. His wife took his son and moved to Canada. His finances hit rock bottom. Frank loved to make candy, but he couldn't sell it. 
A guy named Milton Hershey had created the Hershey Bar in 1900, and America was head over heels for chocolate. Then, after working hard for a long time without a whole lot to show for it, Frank got lucky. His son, who had lived with his mother's family since he was a young boy, visited Frank and gave him an idea. The idea, which may sound a little bit crazy, was to put a chocolate malted drink inside a candy bar. But Frank stumbled on an ingredient made by another candy company that he thought would do the trick. It was called nougat. And the candy bar that came out of that enlightened moment was the first truly massive hit for Frank Mars. With it, he also embraced unusual candy names, names that had very little to do with the product that was inside the wrapper, but which turned out to be marketing gold. That first big hit was called a Milky Way. And the hits kept on coming. Snickers, Three Musketeers. His son came up with tiny pieces of chocolate that they called M&Ms. And Frank, who for so long had had so little, found himself running a multi-million dollar company. Mars is now one of the largest privately held companies in the United States. They do over $30 billion a year in sales. And it is still controlled to this very day by the Mars family. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producer Mark Sollinger, and engineer Doug Sugars. We also had production help from Samantha Crozier and Mariel Carricker. You can hear any of the stories from today's show or from any of our shows by just searching for Innovation Hub in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe and you will get a fresh set of segments sent to you every week. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Museum of Science in Boston, working to push the boundaries of what's possible. PRI Public Radio International. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. CambridgeSavings.com/CSB1